Let me just put it right out there, Micah. That was a blast playing with you. We were, we were talking. I don't think we've ever played before. I, I really don't. And if we have, I just don't remember. It means I'm old and I forgot. So sorry about that. That was, that was a lot of fun. So good to have you and your lovely bride with us this morning. We look forward to celebrating uh, here in a few minutes. Well, not a few minutes. About an hour, right? <laughs> there, my cards are on the table. I want to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Habakkuk. If you're a guest with us, we are at the very end of this study on the book of Habakkuk. It's a minor prophet. It's a little bit difficult to find in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, please grab a pew Bible. You have an English Standard Version there before you and turn to page 787 and you will find your way to Habakkuk chapter 3. The title of the message is A God-Centered Prayer. This is part two. Now over the years you have heard me refer to one of my heroes. His name is Jonathan Edwards and I have alluded to his leadership, his heart of a pastor, his theology, And also his sermons. The Puritan divine was beloved for his God-centered sermons and biblical exposition. But one of the overlooked aspects of Jonathan Edwards, and it will be a news uh, this morning to some of you, is that his life and ministry was absolutely committed to the discipline of prayer. Here's what one biographer says about Jonathan Edwards. He says, throughout the day... Edward's goal was to remain constantly with a sense of the presence of God, as difficult as that might be. Often, he added secret days of prayer and additional fasting to his schedule. Another writer wrote this, Edwards knew prayer was crucial to the presence of what he called a new relish. That is, a new relish of the soul, a a deep and passionate desire for God. And so Edwards called his people, that is, the people at his church, to pray. To pray for the Spirit as a result. I want you to hear firsthand the words of Jonathan Edwards. He says, seeing we have Such a prayer-hearing God as we have heard, let us be much employed in the duty of prayer. Let us pray with all prayer and supplication. Let us live prayerful lives, continuing instant in prayer, watching thereunto with all perseverance, praying always, without ceasing, earnestly, and not fainting." This morning, we have the privilege of witnessing this kind of God-centered resolve in the prayer life of Habakkuk. Last week, we got an inside look at the God-centered prayer of Habakkuk. We learned that the the first aspect of this God-centered prayer is this, is that he contemplated the character of God. That's the first aspect of Habakkuk's prayer life. He, he contemplates the character of God. And we learned four very important lessons by way of review. We saw in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 to 15, four very important realities. We saw that Habakkuk basically said this, God, I stand in awe of you. 
He said in verses 3 and 4, you are the God of glory and splendor. Verses 5 to 7, you are the God of mighty power. Verses 8 through 15, to sum it up, he essentially says, you are the God of victory. And we concluded our time last week by looking at some practical lessons that that flow out of his commitment to what we're referring to as God-centered prayer. We learned three lessons. Number one, when you contemplate the character of God, that is when you when you gaze upon the the attributes of God and you resolve in your heart not to minimize any attributes, not to marginalize any attributes, but to embrace the biblical portrait of who God is, not who you want him to be. When you contemplate the character of God, everything begins to come into perspective. The pain that you're experiencing begins to come in perspective. The emotional issues that you may struggle with begin to come into perspective. Your financial crisis you may be experiencing begins to come into perspective. Why? Because you you have this massive portrait of this great and awesome and holy God. And you realize that he has ordained Everything that comes to pass. We addressed that last week and I freely acknowledge and I freely admit that many people struggle with the reality that God ordains everything that comes to pass. Please, please understand if God doesn't ordain everything that comes to pass, we are to be the most pitied people in all the universe. Why? Because that would mean something happens apart from his sovereign will. That would mean that God's not totally in control. I remember R.C. Sproul said many times over the course of his ministry that there, there are no maverick molecules in God's universe. There are no maverick molecules. God is in control of everything. Lesson number two, we learn that when you contemplate the character of God, your faith begins to blossom. And I've seen this over the years in in pastoral ministry, that when the people of God begin to zero in on the attributes of God, and they begin to study the, the sovereignty of God, and the holiness of God, and the love of God, and the mercy of God, and the wrath of God, and the goodness of God, and the long suffering of God, all of a sudden, your faith begins to rise. I challenged you last week to get a hold of two books. One book is titled The Sovereignty of God by A.W. Pink, an an astounding book. It is a book that will cause your faith to rise. The other book was a book by uh, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. And it is a book that does not focus exclusively on sovereignty like Pink does in his book. Rather, it looks at a wide range of attributes. Reading those books in concert with the Word of God will cause your faith to blossom. The third lesson we looked at is that when you contemplate the character of God, you are drawn to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that we always want to do, not only in the New Testament, but always in the Old Testament, is we always want to send you back to the cross. There is great controversy on whether or not Spurgeon said it or not. And frankly, I could care less whether he said it or not. That is, you always need to make a beeline to the cross. There's been some great discussion in recent months as to whether or not he actually said that. The reason it doesn't matter to me whether or not he said it is that he did it in every sermon. 
He always made a beeline to the cross. You see, even in the Old Testament, always in the Old Testament, he always sent sinners to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say this morning, if you have come and you are not yet a Christian, the the most important thing I can say to you is flee to the cross. Flee from the wrath to come. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus for your eternal salvation. Now, Please remember, by way of introduction, we've spent several weeks in this little book, the book of Habakkuk. I want you to remember this, that Habakkuk, when we talk about his God-centered prayer, I want you to remember that he was not tiptoeing through the tulips, right? Remember that old song? Was it Tiny Tim that used to sing that song, tiptoeing through the tulips? This is not what Habakkuk was doing. Rather, he found himself in a season of what I like to refer to as bitter providence. These were seasons of pain. These were seasons of adversity. This was a season where where he was in crisis mode, yet he commits himself to to be a man of God-centered prayer. We could very easily compare Habakkuk and his faith to the man in Mark chapter 9. We talked about this in Iron Man yesterday, who said to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever been there? Where you say, Jesus, I, I believe in you. I believe in what you have accomplished on Calvary's cross. I believe your word. I believe your promises. But I am struggling right now. I hear this all the time. Christ followers on a regular basis are, are mimicking the faith of the man in Mark chapter 9 who said, Lord, I believe, but please, please, please help my unbelief. And so this God-centered prayer is forged in the fires of adversity. This God-centered prayer is, is, is built around a season of suffering and pain. In our lives as well, our faith will be forged to a great degree during those seasons of suffering and the seasons of pain. This morning, we conclude our study, Lord willing, in this little book by looking at the final three aspects of Habakkuk's God-centered prayer. We stand to your feet as we read these verses together, beginning in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. And notice the intensity, especially in verse 16. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, what a journey it has been. And for many of us, we can understand uh, some of what Habakkuk experienced 
we will even experience more of it today as we wrestle with the the spiritual matters, the emotional matters, the physical matters, those things that cause trauma in our lives, those seasons of adversity we can relate to and we stand with our brother Habakkuk. And so I pray now as we conclude this book that you would help us to get a really an inside look into this godly man's prayer life. He would help us to see his commitments and that we would leave today with the same commitments as this God-centered man. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You recall that the first aspect of Habakkuk's God-centered prayers that he contemplates the character of God. Here is the second aspect of his God-centered prayer life. It's found in verse 16. That is, he is contrite before the living God. Read it once again with me. I hear it and my body trembles. My lips quiver, quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This man is contrite before God. Every part of his faculty, there's not nothing, nothing is left out. Every part of his faculty has been deeply, deeply affected. A trembling body, quivering lips. Have you ever seen someone with a quivering lip? It's someone who is emotional, who has a quivering lip. It's someone who is fearful, who has a quivering lip. Have you ever seen a man with a quivering lip? It's, it's quite a deal. I've, I've been one of those. When you're either so upset or so frightened or so filled with anxiety that it causes your bottom lip to quiver. That's what's happening in the life of this man. He goes on to describe how his, his bones appear as if they're rotting. His legs are trembling. I don't mean to make light of it, but I, I know one of the times when my leg trembles, and it's only happened three times, three times, I was picked up by a police officer. And I, Or any of you like me, when the police officer approaches your car, it's, something happens to your right leg. It just, it does this. Is anyone, am I the only one? Anyone? So I'm just a nutcase. Thank you, Les. Your right leg trembles. That's just to give you an idea of what's happening in the life of this man. How, how is he being affected exactly? First of all, he's being affected economically. He's being affected economically. What happens when the crops fail and the livestocks die? Think about that. When the trees don't bear fruit, when the cattle drop dead... That means you don't have the resources to support your family. That means you don't eat yourself. He's affected economically because of this chain of events that has come crashing into his life. He's also affected physically, as we've already indicated. Whenever you walk through seasons of adversity, it affects your physical strength and your vitality. Sometimes, and many of you have experienced this, and I'll be very frank with you, I experienced it last night. I generally don't sleep well on Saturday night. Last night was a doozy. Wow. Your sleep is affected. If you have ever battled with insomnia, just for fun, how many of you have ever battled with insomnia? Quite a few. Wow, that's amazing. So none of your legs tremble, but you can't sleep at night. 
I see what we're working with here, right? If you have never battled insomnia, you have no idea. It, those of you that raise your hand, it's the worst, right? Because it affects everything the next day. Your, your energy, your attitude, your spirit, your vitality, it just throws you off your game. Your energy level may be depleted. You may grow tired and lethargic. You may battle what physicians and psychologists call brain fog. Have you experienced that one? Brain fog, where you say, I experienced it a few minutes ago. I was like, where did I put my keys? I couldn't find my keys. Well, they're right down by my feet. Brain fog. You have a host of other negative results that come crashing into your life when you experience seasons of adversity. The psalmist in Psalm chapter 32 also experienced physical side effects when he withheld his sin from God. Have you thought about this? Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Now listen to what he says. When I kept silent, he doesn't say what about, but the context reveals he's silent about his sin. When I kept silent about my sin, here's the result. My bones wasted away. Look at verse 16 in Habakkuk 3. Something similar is happening. There is, there's a physical effect. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In the case of Habakkuk, it's not unconfessed sin. Rather, the adversity, the bitter providence that he is experiencing is affecting him in a very direct way. And so he is affected economically, he is affected physically, he's also affected emotionally. We have already seen this throughout the pages of this book. When, even when our faith is strong, even in our strongest moments, the trials that we endure take a toll on our emotional lives. We may grow irritable. We may battle insecurity. We may become impatient. We may be faced with a whole host, of, whole host of maladies like anxiety or fear or depression. And my suspicion is Habakkuk faced a whole season of all of these. Finally, he is affected spiritually. He is affected spiritually. Once again, you may have a, a strong and a vibrant faith, but when you face moments of adversity, you may enter a crisis that is a spiritual crisis. And during these seasons, this is time when your faith has opportunity to rise. Your, your faith can grow. Even though you battle doubt, you battle, unbe you battle unbelief, you battle with the promises of God. And so while this man, Habakkuk, has been affected at every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, he remains contrite before God. Isn't that something? I mean, it's like the, the battering ram is just boom, boom, boom. And he chooses to remain contrite before God. At the end of verse 16, we see one of the fundamental marks of a contrite person. Look at it with me. After all those effects he experiences, there is a very important word. It's the word yet. You see it there? Yet I 
will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon on the people who invade us. I want you to take a moment with me to notice three very important observations about contrition. Contrition is not a word that we hear much of in our culture, but it's a very important biblical reality. Notice first with me the posture of contrition. What does it look like? Well, contrition in the Old Testament means that you're lame or crippled. You're lame or crippled. It refers to a person who has been utterly broken down. And this is what's happening in verse 16 as, as his body trembles and his lips quiver at the sound and rottenness, in, rottenness enters into his bones. Simply put, a contrite person is a repentant person. A contrite person is a repentant person. At this point, Habakkuk, I believe, is exactly where he needs to be before God. He is in a posture of contrition. May I ask you this morning, do you find yourself in a posture of contrition? Do you find yourself broken before God? Are you submitting to God these days or are you shaking your fist at God? Do you find yourself saying, Lord, I don't understand your plans. Lord, I don't understand your purposes. Lord, I don't even like this season of life, but I choose to submit to your sovereign authority. This is the posture of contrition. But second, notice with me the payoff of contrition. That is to say, what are the benefits of contrition? In Psalm chapter 51, we see that God is drawn to the heart of the contrite. He's not only drawn to the heart of the contrite person, he revives the heart of the contrite person. Have you figured that one out in the Christian life? Is As you shake your fist at God, as you're filled with pride, as your fist is shaking, you remember James chapter 4 that says, God resists the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. Would you turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 34? Psalm chapter 34. I want you to see how God revives the heart of the contrite. Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. And if you're so inclined, you might hold your finger there and also go over to Isaiah chapter 57. First, Psalm chapter 34, verse 18. A a, a mighty and a comforting promise. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Here is a person who is contrite. Here is a person who is repentant. Here is a person who has a broken heart. And you need to understand today that God is there for you. He is there to comfort you. He is there to stand beside you. He is there to be your rock, to be your source of strength in time of need. Even more so on Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. We see this amazing reality. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. Notice, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. 
Now, the picture here is a God who is transcendent. He is over and above the scope of the universe. He is, simply put, sovereign. He has unrivaled supremacy over every person, over every circumstance, over everything in the cosmos. This great, mighty, holy God says, I am with you. Those of you who are contrite in spirit, I am with you. I am there to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Some of you this morning have come with with a burdened heart. You're struggling in some way, shape, or form. Some of you in in many senses, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, etc., etc., The man or the woman, the boy or the girl who is contrite in spirit has a mighty reality to cling to today. You can walk out knowing God is for you. He is not against you. He is with you in this dark season. I want you to see also that God exalts the person who comes before him in humility and contrition. That is the promise of James chapter 4, that he resists the proud, but he gives what to the humble? Grace. He gives grace to the humble. Finally, look with me at some principles of contrition. And there are many that I have uncovered over the years, but I'll I'll give you just a, a few for our purposes this morning. The first principle of contrition is to admit The depth of sin. Here's one thing that I have discovered. It didn't take long for me to figure this out. But in the counseling room, I hear this more often than not. Yeah, I made a mistake last week. Do you know, I've I've had the opportunity to counsel people over the years. And more often than not, I hear it's a mistake and not someone yell it out. Sin. Sin. Why? Because... We don't like that word anymore. We don't like that word anymore, but we are sinners and we need to recognize and acknowledge not the depth of our mistakes, but we acknowledge the depth of our sin. J.C. Ryle recognizes that true repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. His pride breaks down. His high thoughts melt away. Isn't that great? His high thoughts melt away. He sees that he is a great sinner. This is the first step in true repentance. This morning, if you're struggling with sin, your first step is to say, I am a great sinner. But Christ, as John Newton reminds us, is a great savior. You move on from acknowledging the depths of sin to acknowledging the horror of sin. We begin with the depth of sin, and then we we acknowledge the horror of sin. John Calvin now is an example of a man who acknowledged not only the depth of his personal sin, but he took it further. He acknowledged the horror of his sin. Here's what he says. He says, besides, it is not the mere fear of punishment that restrains him from sin, loving and revering God as his father, honoring and obeying him as his master. Although there were no hell, he would revolt at the very idea of offending him. Did you hear what Calvin said? He said, even if there weren't a hell where sinners would be sent, I would be deathly afraid of offending this holy God. 
There's a third principle. You need to realize that sin goes deeper than you can ever imagine. I've learned over the years that probing sin, not only in my own heart, but in all other hearts, is like peeling off the layers of an onion. You start to peel the onion, and what do you find under the first layer? Another layer. And you take off that layer. What do you find? You go deeper and deeper and deeper until you get to the very core. It's like that in the Christian life. Asking thoughtful and penetrating questions helps people go deeper and to discover their idolatrous motivations and desires. And once these motivations are identified and exposed and confronted, they can be repented of and healing can begin. Another principle very quickly is to remember that God is omniscient. Whatever you're struggling with today, know that God has comprehensive knowledge about all things in the past, in the present, in the future. He knows all about my sin. He knows all about your sin. He knows when we commit sin, when we yield to sin, when we cherish sin in our hearts. He knows about our sinful motivations. He knows when we hide sin, like King David hid sin after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Therefore, it's a lesson that every second grader can understand. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's yet another principle. We must turn from our sin. Another key mark of a contrite person is an ongoing hatred for sin. I hope that every one of you, when you walk out of this sanctuary, can say to yourself and say to God, there's one thing I hate in this life. I hate sin. I despise sin. I abhor sin. I hate it. And the person who hates sin will quickly turn from his or her sin. Once again, J.C. Ryle says, true repentance shows itself by producing in the heart a settled habit of deep hatred towards sin. Christians committed to developing biblical uh, contrition turn from sin by doing this. They put sin to death every day. I love the King James in Romans chapter 8. Mortify the flesh, right? Mortify the flesh. Put to death the flesh. So we stand with the Puritans and we make it our aim to mortify sin by the power of the Spirit every day. The great Puritan John Owen said this, The vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Owen said, If left unchecked, sin will bring a great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. That is to say, it's time for us to take seriously our battle with sin. And so in pursuing God-centered contrition, what do we do? We turn from sin. We hate sin. We turn from sin. We confess our every sin to God. I want to have you look with me at the third mark of a God-centered prayer. It's found in verse 17. Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And in my mind, that's horrible because there'd be no olive oil, right? And the fields yield no fruit and the flocks be cut off from the fold and there'd be no herd in the stalls. What do we see here? 
Another mark of Habakkuk's prayer, his God-centered prayer life, is he is content with God. Don't miss this amazing reality that he's content with God. The crops have failed. The livestock is dying or already dead. Nothing seems to be working in his life right now. The Babylonian army is coming for him. They're coming for Judah. But he chooses to be content with God. It's the Apostle Paul who models for each of us what it looks like to live in a framework of biblical contentedness. He says this in Philippians chapter 4. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. And now at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be Thank you. Can you believe it? The Dave Steele Revised Standard Translation. No matter what happens, dude, I'm content. It doesn't matter what God gives. We're going to sing about this in a few minutes. Or what God takes away. He gives and takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul goes on. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty. That is, he has a lot and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what the Greek word for content means? It means you're satisfied with what you have. The word for content means God This is what you've given me. I'm content with it. I'm content with it. Paul understood what it meant to have a full stomach. He knew what it meant to have a good Thai dinner, right? Well, maybe not. He knew what it was to to have a a, a nice meal of, of fish and vegetables and fresh produce, right? But he also knew what it was like to go to bed hungry. He understood what it meant to go without. And I believe with all my heart, this is a lesson. If I can criticize you and I as Americans that we have not learned. We need to learn the discipline and the art of contentedness. I remember how this principle first grabbed me in a very powerful way when I went to the Republic of Belarus for the first time. You see, in Belarus... You go to the market and you have very little to choose from by way of selection. Let's let's uh, use shampoo as an example. You go into the market and there are very few options for you in terms of shampoo. And it's like this with every other product. I remember when I came home and Jereen picked me up. We needed to make a run to Costco. And I, I, I'll be the first to admit, I just really enjoy Costco. Even if I don't need anything, I just like to walk around at Costco and eat free samples and watch people, right? <laughs> Sorry. If you ever see me, you just know I'm walking around eating free stuff. And I'll never forget it. We walked into Costco after being in Belarus for three weeks and seeing what they don't have. And I got sick to my stomach. 
Have you ever looked at the shampoo section in Costco? Have you ever looked? This happened to me a few weeks ago. Jereen sent me to the store and we need the XYZ shampoo. And I, I stood before this cacophony of products. And once again, it was a different sickness, but I started to get sick to my stomach because I had no idea what I was doing. There's this shampoo and that shampoo. And there, I mean, it, there's sugar-free shampoo and gluten-free shampoo. And I mean, it's like, wh- what in the world is this? We have no idea what it means to be content. Yet my friends in Belarus, they're content when they only have one brand. They're content when they have less than we have. And what I learned about my friends in Belarus, I've been three times and I've experienced it every time. They're, they're so much more joyful than you and I. I, I, I walk away from there feeling so ashamed because they have diddly. They have diddly squat. And what do we have? Everything. But we just don't have enough. And so we need to learn with our, learn from our Belarusian Christian friends the discipline and the art of contentedness. Habakkuk models this in chapter 3, verse 17. The trees didn't blossom. Can you imagine? No fig newtons. That's horrible. The fig tree didn't blossom. The fruit didn't show up on the vines. No more olive oil. The fields are barren. The animals on the farm had either died or were dying, or were looted, stolen by the Babylonian army. Yet he is content with God. Notice a final mark of his God-centered prayer life. He is, according to verses 18 and 19, confident. You know, I love the word confident. It comes from two little words smashed together. Con means with. It's not the person that's in jail. Can't believe you thought that. Con means with. You with me? Con means with and fideo is faith. If you're confident, you're filled with faith. And so Habakkuk is confident in God's sovereign plan. Verse 18, once again, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. In spite of all that he endured throughout this book and in his life, Habakkuk chooses to rejoice in the Lord. On at least two occasions, Paul the Apostle told the believers at the Philippi church, in the church in Philippi rather, to rejoice This is something that has just fascinated me over the years, the issue of joy. Do you struggle with joy, joylessness? The idea of joy in the New Testament means that you have a feeling of happiness. You know what's a good thing to be happy? God wants us to be happy. He wants us to be joy-filled people. And I believe that a joyful attitude is a prime mark of a person who expresses confidence in God's sovereign plan. Let me give a few examples of people who express this confidence in God's sovereign plan. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 said this, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Despite all that Paul had endured over the course of his ministry, he chooses to maintain his joy and to express confidence in God's sovereign pleasure, the God who raises the dead. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. There it is again. I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, when I lose it all, my faith still shines I maintain my confident faith and trust in God's sovereign plan. One additional example. You can't help but mention Job. And there's a line. It it might be my favorite verse in the whole book of Job. Job chapter 13, verse 15. That says, though he slay me. Some of the men know that I'm a little preoccupied with personal pronouns. I know it's a little weird, but... You have to ask, who is the he, though he slay me? The devil? That's wrong. Though God slay me, though God sovereignly allows me to walk through this bitter season of providence, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. I don't know anyone outside the Lord Jesus Christ who endured unjust persecution and an unjust unjust death besides Job who is able to stand with all the other saints and say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So this is a lesson we learned from Paul, from Job, from Habakkuk. These men trusted in God when their faith was challenged. They trusted God. In seasons of adversity, they trusted God. When the chips were down, they trusted God. I've already made reference to it, but the most, possibly the most important words in this passage, verses 16 to 19, are the words, yet. And it happens two times. One in verse 16, all the things that the prophet was afflicted with, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And then verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Let me close this morning by sending you home and you can't go home. We're going to lunch, but by sending you out of this sanctuary with four principles that I pray will help to, to bolster your God centered prayer life. Number one, Uh, Never become embittered or disillusioned with God's sovereign plan. Never become embittered or disillusioned at God's sovereign plan. You remember that episode at the end of Genesis chapter 50 when Joseph's brothers came face to face with him. They had left him for dead in a hole, you remember. And now Joseph had ascended to a top leadership position with Pharaoh and he stands before his brothers 
and we already mentioned this a few weeks ago, I'm sure the brothers are, they're gulping, right? Because they think, off with the head. And what does Joseph say? He looks them in the eye and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Jonathan Edwards reminds us that we must always cultivate a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign purposes of God. Let me give that one more time. That's worth putting on your dash in your car. That's worth putting on your refrigerator. That's worth putting on your desk. Edward says we must cultivate a calm and quiet submission of soul to the sovereign purposes of God. Number two, always be passionate about God's sovereign plan. Always be passionate about God's sovereign plan. In Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, we read, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. In Isaiah 48, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. Number three. May I encourage you to always rejoice in God's sovereign plan. Never allow circumstances to dictate your day or your demeanor. And I confess to you, this is is something I've been battling my whole adult life. Is something will come into my life and I'll get in my car and I'll drive and my hands on the, and I start to get all bent out of shape. And sometimes it happens sooner. Sometimes it happens later when I realize, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The Lord is in control. Why am I allowing circumstances to dictate my demeanor? My disposition? Or my day? Why do I do that? And so we should always rejoice in God's sovereign plan. One commentator says, You must learn to rejoice in the Lord. All the sweet material things of earth will forsake you. A day will come when you must say goodbye to all of earth's pleasures. You will have to say farewell to friends on the earth. Through faith, God will be sweetest in the hours of bitterest partings from earthly joys. And then he says this, what are you clutching to your heart? Or is it God and his promises? You see, you can rejoice in God's sovereign plan because you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has your best interests in mind. Everything God does, all of God's decrees are for your good and for his glory. He is for you. Be assured that Christ will write the end of the story and he will make all things new. Finally, always find your satisfaction. In Christ. May your confidence in God's sovereignty run so deep that you will never offer complaints to God. And may I encourage you to say with the psalmist, as he says in Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. 
Now think about that. In your presence is fullness of joy. Is that not what we want? Is that not what we desire? To be a people who have fullness of joy? Have you ever met a Christian that looked like they've been sucking on a lemon for the last 12 years? Do you understand that? We need to take the lemons out of our mouths and we need to be people of joy, joy, joy. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you're a Christian who has the lemon in your mouth, God is gracious to remove that lemon and to enable you to be a joy-filled person. To To be the most joyful person in the room. God can do that. He's a gracious God and May I close by saying, if you have never turned from your sin, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, today is the day of salvation. And the thought struck me as I was preparing, and we'll close with this. If you're not a Christian today, the first God-centered prayer from your lips is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then you stand in the ranks of all the men and women and boys and girls who strive to be a God-centered person, who strive to utter God-centered prayers, all to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being so good to us here in this uh, church family. Thank you for the lessons that we have been learning in this uh, very powerful book Lord, I pray that you would uh, teach me. I pray that you teach each of us to be a people who utter God-centered prayers. And we know, by definition, if we are praying God-centered prayers, that means that we are moving in the direction of being God-centered people. Lord, I'm excited to sing these final songs together as a church family to express our, our, our love for you, our confidence in you, expressing a, a strong belief in your sovereign plan. So thank you for this special day. In Jesus' name, amen.